Welcome to NetSmart Care Threads, a podcast where human services and post-acute leaders across the healthcare continuum come together to discuss industry trends, challenges, and opportunities. Listen as we uncover real stories about how to innovate and improve the quality of care for the communities we serve. Let's get into the show. My name is Amy Wilson, and I'm your host today. I'm a senior solutions strategist at NetSmart, which means I'm responsible for the product strategy and execution. I began my career as a hospice nurse. I served as a hospice administrator, and I've been working in the industry for 20 years. I'm very excited to introduce our guest today. Joining me today is the renowned Barbara Carnes, a nurse, author, and extraordinary end-of-life educator. Barbara's career spans four decades, where she spent many years at the bedside caring for patients and their families as a nurse. She has also served as executive director of hospice and various home health agencies. Barbara has received numerous awards, including Hospice Innovator by the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. Barbara, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's good to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. I just have to say before we get started, I am a little in awe. Uh, You have been a mentor of mine for years and years and years. And as a hospice nurse, never left the office or my home without that little blue book gone from my site. Um, So you've you've definitely um, shaped the industry, and I thank you for that. Oh, thank you. All right. Today, we're going to talk about the number one challenge facing every healthcare provider today, which is obviously the staffing shortage with nurse burnout being a critical concern. We'll also discuss how we can better equip the next generation of hospice nurses to pursue hospice care and understand what it takes to provide exceptional end-of-life care. And then finally, we're gonna get Barbara's perspective on the impact of technology, how to use it in a meaningful way so nurses can deliver exceptional care and patients can benefit from that exceptional care. So let's go ahead and get started. Let's start with the staffing shortage. So the staffing shortage has been one of the biggest barriers to growth for hospices since at least the start of the pandemic. Every agency has been working with a very thin workforce since COVID, which has impacted patient admissions. One question that I want to ask you, Barbara, is what do you think hospice leaders could be doing differently to recruit and retain their staff? Well, I don't really know how to recruit in today's market but I do know how to retain staff. And in order to retain staff, we have to take care of them. We have to educate them. What I want you to think about is that our medical model, in our medical model, death is a failure. Death is is considered um, the one thing we don't want in our medical model. And end-of-life workers, whether they're hospice or end-of-life doulas, are working outside of the medical model. Our belief is that everybody dies and that we can do the best we can to keep a person alive, but that there's a difference between breathing and really living and being alive. So in order to retain our staff, we have to break the mental concept that death is a failure, that death is what's going to happen. 
And that means we have to educate. Taking care of someone at end of life is different than taking care of someone who's going to get better. But most people, including nurses and our medical system, don't know that there's a difference. And so our work is judged on how people get better. So 90% of end of life work is education. And that isn't just educating the community, it's educating your staff so that they understand the difference and know how to approach dying and death. So in order to retain your staff, number one, you've got to educate them. Then you've got to support them and teach them how to take care of themselves. Because those personalities that are drawn to the medical profession tend to be doers, fix-it personalities, put everyone before themselves. And what we have to teach our staff is to put their mask on first, their oxygen mask on first, and then, and that means taking care of themselves so they have the energy to take care of others. I learned, okay, I'm going to tell you a story. I got into end-of-life work, into hospice, because I thought I understood and had come to terms with dying and death. And so one about one year after all of my patients died, I was being a facilitator at a grief workshop, and I was the one that fell in a little heap on the floor and said, there are so many ghosts. What I didn't know and what I teach all of us who work in end of life is that we need some kind of ritual closure for all of our patients. I personally went to every visitation. I didn't go to funerals because funerals are for listening. Visitations are for visiting. I encourage visitations. Um, I encouraged open caskets. Um, so I would go to the visitation on my own dime, on my own time, and go up to the casket, put my hand on the body. Now everyone's watching because, oh, there's the hospice nurse. And I would say to the body, thank you for coming into my life. I wish you well on your journey. And then I would go to the families and I would say the same thing. Thank you for coming into my life. And I wish you well on your life journey. That was my closure. Then I could move on. Now, I recommend that everyone find their own closure. And maybe, as just popping out ideas, maybe you have a journal and write the patient's name and death date in the journal, and then a couple of sentences about that patient and the family. Um, or have 
a ritual of going home and lighting a candle and talking in your heart to the person that died and then blow out the candle. Whatever works for you, but to keep you healthy, you've got to have a ritual. The other thing in retaining staff that you're going to teach them and what I'd like to see agencies do, some do, some don't, is create a buddy system for each person who works with end of life in the agency. Um, We need a listener. We need someone we can trust, someone who doesn't have the answers, but who will listen, who you can leave a home, go around the corner, pick up your cell phone and call your buddy and say, oh my God, you wouldn't believe what just happened and download. Because if we don't download, we're going to carry this stuff with us forever. And so I would like to see agencies, when they bring on new staff, automatically assign a buddy and understand that support. And yes, we have agency parties and dinners. It's not the same. You know, I used to come home from work and I would tell my husband, uh, oh, this happened, that happened. And after about three times of that, he said, Barbara, you can't tell me this stuff. I can't deal with it. So it's got to be someone who understands what your life, our life, is like and what we're dealing with. Yeah, that is a great point. And as a young hospice nurse, I was lucky enough to have that buddy. And I started hospice nursing at 21 years old, which is not very common for hospice nurses to start straight out of nursing school. And that was so important to have that buddy. My family, they can't even really say the word death or die. Um, so for me to go home and, and try and have that, that outlet, it wasn't, it wasn't there for me. But that kept me very healthy having that team around you um, of, of hospice professionals. Well, and I think it's really interesting that you went from nursing school straight to end-of-life work. I did the same thing. I never worked in the medical environment. I never worked in the hospital. And you know what? That was my gift because I didn't have any preconceived ideas on what to do when someone was dying. And yes, it was a time when no one knew because we put the person at the end of the hall and didn't go until they were dead. But being with All these people who were dying, they were my teachers in those five years that I did direct patient nursing care in the home. And in looking back, I didn't have the hindrance that a nurse who's had 15 years or even five years in ICU. um, And a lot of ICU nurses say, oh, Finally, I got to leave and they go to hospice. But again, we have to educate all of them 
on what dying is like because it's different at home or in a facility. Definitely. How do you feel about um, the education that our young nurses are getting about end-of-life care in nursing school? I didn't have a lot of end-of-life education formally in nursing school. What's your feeling on that? Well, I don't think that our medical model really understands end-of-life and dying. And so I believe, and please, someone prove me wrong, that in our nursing schools, unless they bring in someone, a hospice person, to teach the class, or and I would hope a semester worth of end of life, which probably isn't going to happen, but unless they bring someone in, then that teaching is going to be clinical and medical. And I can't say enough that dying is not a medical event. It is an emotional, it is a social, it is a communal event. And we need to teach it from that perspective. Yes, we can teach um, pain management. We can teach the basic medical care, but not all this fancy stuff that is taught um, from the medical perspective. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's kind of the part of being a hospice nurse is not only do you need the training for as far as you know your nursing education, but it's much more of a social um, type of a setting. And so what do you think that we can do as an industry to train our nurses, train younger nurses, train the nurses that are already in the field to be able to um, really excel that end-of-life care like, like you and I have seen with the veteran nurses? How can we instill that into our younger generation? I do believe it starts in nursing school, but I would like to write the, the program because not have it focused on all the medical. I would, um, you know, I used to give workshops around the country and all day workshops, which was teaching end of life care. I do have a DVD that's three hours. I edited it, but it provides the basis on end-of-life care, and that's what we have to do. But because nursing schools aren't doing it, then that means the agency, the hospice agency, when they're hiring, has to provide that foundation. Um, I remember giving a workshop and and talking about end-of-life, and one of the hospice nurses was just not buying any of it. And she couldn't deal with not doing something physically. And really, I said, you know, I think you're in the wrong business. I think you should be a home health nurse because home health fixes. Hospice is not fixing. They're supporting. They're guiding. 
And so we've got to get that across to our new hires and all of our hires, all of our nurses, is teaching how to be a listener, teaching how to develop a rapport on the first visit. And you know how we do that? Unfortunately, we do it with time. And hospices don't really have the time that's required to build a relationship. And when we walk in the door for a first visit, when you walk in the door, right then, your goal is to become their best friend. And you do that by addressing the personhood of not just the patient, and we tend to get our referrals so late, there's no building anything with the patient, unfortunately. But we want, by the time we leave that first visit, to have developed a trust with that family. And one of the things that I would like to see across every hospice is what I call primary care nursing. And that is you have the same nurse all the way through your experience. How can you build a trust with a new face every time for an hour? You need the same nurse, the same social worker, the same home health aide every visit. Doesn't always happen. And so when it doesn't happen, this is when you use the little blue book. This is when you use the 11th hour. You want teaching to be consistent. And when you've got the same staff working with the family, then everyone's on the same page. But when you have different staff coming every visit, then you need something that you leave behind for consistency. And that's where the little blue book and the little pink book come in handy. Yes, definitely. And with that being said, developing that rapport, that trust with your patient, we still have to do the nursing things. We still have to document, we still have to support prognosis. So how do you feel we could better train nurses to adopt and use technology and find that happy balance between the essential face-to-face, eye-to-eye patient interaction and their documentation requirements? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to tell you a story. My husband fell last year, broke his hip. Home health came in and the home health nurse walked in, sat in a chair across, almost across the room from him, pulled out her tablet and said, I've, you know, I'm sorry, but I've got to do all this, this paperwork first. And she spent an hour and 45 minutes going through all of this paperwork and on her tablet. And then she said, okay, let's go look at your bandage. And she changed the bandage 15 minutes and was gone. I'm going to turn this around. 
and say that you don't come in and start off with all the technology. Yes, we need it. And yes, it provides consistency in documentation. It helps the nurse and the social worker to address all the important areas. It's necessary. But personhood is first. You knock on the door, you ring the doorbell. Hi, I'm Barbara. I'm going to be your nurse from hospice. And you hold out your hand and you shake hands because you've done physical touch. Right then, you're closer. And you say, can we come in? Can I come in? Let Where would it be comfortable for us to sit and talk for a little bit? So you go into the living room or wherever they take you. Let's say they take you to the kitchen. You're not going to sit across from them at the kitchen table. You're going to sit beside them at the kitchen table. You're doing unspoken um, connections. Okay. If you're in the living room, you're not going to sit clear across the room. You're going to sit on the couch next to them. And then you're going to start talking and you're going to say, tell me what's going on. Give me a little background. What's been happening? What do you think your needs are right now? How do you think we can help you and get them talking? Then if the husband's in the bedroom and he's a week from death, um, after you visited, then you say, let's go see John. And you go in. When you, you're, you're working on your personhood, you're working on keeping them comfortable with you. We are all going to be afraid when it comes time to die. Caregivers are terrified, fear-wise, of their responsibility, of their loved one dying, and the fact that they don't know. We don't have role models. Television, people don't die like they do on television. And yet, when we see our loved one dying normally, but it's not like on television, then we think something's wrong. We think there's something pathological, all right? So it's all about trust and neutralizing the fear. So you're working on this relationship. I'm going to be your nurse and I'm going to, based on what you're telling me about, John, I I think that I probably need to come every week to see you. Um, and there will be a point where as he gets closer to dying, to death, then I will come maybe every day. I'm going to be your support person. So then after you've done all this social interacting, but you're gathering information, then you say, you know, I've got paperwork that we've got to look at. And that's part of Medicare. Medicare requires me to do all this. And I'm telling you, it's a hassle, something we got to do. Yes, absolutely. 
that makes a lot of sense. And as you're talking, what I'm I'm just thinking about you know, hospice nurses in general, or, or nurses even in the ICU. And the one thing you hear is from nurses, I never get to spend enough time with my patient, or I never get to establish a relationship with my patients. That is one unique thing about hospice care. That's what you're there to do, um, first and foremost. You may change the Foley catheter as well, but that's your your number one job. Oh, absolutely. You know, end of life work is about treating people that have diseases. Our medical model treats diseases that people happen to have. And so as hospice has become more medicalized, and it has, it's been absorbed into the medical model, that treating people versus treating diseases has kind of become blurred. And because it's become blurred, it is up to each individual hospice, administration on down, to continually stress personhood and the the humanity that hospice and end-of-life work is about. It's not about the disease. It's not about the medical. And yet, often our administration loses that by the time it gets down to the nurses and the social worker and the chaplain. And so I can't stress enough for the head of the organization sets the tone and to constantly remember we're working with people that have diseases. And the best tool we have is time. And time is the tool that we're losing. We're losing. And so if technology can bring us to a point of reducing the charting time so that we have more time with the patient and the family, that's the blessing. That's the blessing. We just have to know how to approach that blessing so it doesn't look like the curse that so many people think. Yes, definitely. And I was one of those nurses that um, was not, or was pretty reluctant to adapt to technology as a hospice nurse because of all of these things we've talked about. I felt like it was going to be a barrier. Um, But if you have documentation that's streamlined and not duplicating any documentation and you have everything at your fingertips, you really can make better decisions. Um, I, I came to find I came to find out and became a big cheerleader. Um, definitely. So technology as it relates to documentation is one thing, but what about other aspects of technology? Telehealth or telemedicine? Do you see a place for that in in the hospice realm with all the changes we've seen um, with COVID, all the telehealth, telemonitoring? Do you see any place for um, for additional technology in the in the industry? Yes. Well, I used to, um, during COVID, everyone was introduced to Zoom. Um, even those of us that are technolo- technolo- I can't even say it, technologically challenged, you know, we all learned how to Zoom. 
And because of our staff shortages, and I, I worked with hospices all over the country during COVID via Zoom to think outside the box. So how we could provide care without even going into the homes uh, unless we had to. So what I think can help us, not everyone, and the older the, the caregiver, the less technological information and ability they have. But between the phone and Zooms, if you're short of staff, you can cut the number of visits, in-house visits, and maybe substitute, if the caregiver can do it, a Zoom call. And it's more personal, really, uh, to be able to see the person than a phone call. And you, you know, say, I can't make as, as your nurse, I can't get there today, but let's zoom. Can you take your laptop in and show me what, what John looks like? What let's talk. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? We can use a limited, and I underline, underline, underline a limited amount of Zoom calls with our families to fill us in while we're dealing with the staff shortage, rather than just saying, I can't get there, um, or rather than really wanting to visit twice a week, but no, there isn't the staff to do that, so you've cut them back to once a week. Use a Zoom to fill in. Yeah, and with our clients, I've I've had a lot of clients that are are utilizing Zoom and technology, and it's getting better. It was very awkward at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, we're hospice nurses; we're touchy. We we need to be able to touch. Uh, but I do see it getting getting better. And like you said, with the staff shortage, we, we're hospice nurses to take care of these patients, and if we can't get there because of the staff shortage, we want to be able to continue to practice at the top of our license. That's our passion. That's our drive. So you know, augmenting with some of the technology aspects has really helped through COVID. I wasn't so sure how it was going to go, but it seems as if it's been pretty successful. It really has in that I even have used Zoom or recommended, suggested that during COVID, when we couldn't be with our loved ones, um, I recommended Zoom so that the family could Zoom together so that even the son will say who's, you know, 200 miles away and can't get there to be with dad, that we get a Zoom going and have that uh, in the room, let him, you know, talk to dad, even if dad is not responsive. So we can use that to help support our families and they can help each other. You know, you've got to remember people under stress, they tend to not think outside the box. It's up to us to do that. 
It's up to us as part of our teaching and our support um, to give them ideas, things that they can do. And I think Zoom with family that can't get there is a gift that COVID gave us because COVID gave us the idea. And, you know, before, before we had the Zoom idea, um, if son was in England and couldn't get here, um, he missed out. He didn't get to interact with Zoom. You just get him there. Um, so it's a gift. Yes, definitely. Definitely. As you look at the future of hospice, what is your number one piece of advice for hospice clinical leaders? My number one advice is you've got to constantly remind yourself that dying is not a medical event, that the best medicine, and I put that in quotes, for the dying that we can give them is time. So I have to ask as hospice leaders that you take the time into consideration. I had a nurse say to me that she had a full schedule one day and the scheduler called and said, I want you to just zip by the house and do a death pronouncement call. And the nurse said, well, you know, I've got a full schedule and I really am not going to have time. It's really going to be a constraint. And the scheduler said, hey, it's only a 10-minute call. Just zip in, pronounce them dead, and leave. That is not what hospice is about. You know, I will say, and I want everyone who is an end of life to think about this. End of life work. Our goal is the patient's death. That's the goal. Everything we do before the death leads up. All the care, all the support, all the education leads up to the moment of death. And all the work we do after the moment of death gradually decreases, but that's our bereavement support for the 13 months. The moment of death is the important moment. We want to make that a sacred experience for the family and those there because they will carry that memory with them forever, forever. And so we want that memory to be sacred. And that means we need to address the hours before death and the hours after the death as the focal point of our work. And yet, most families are alone when their loved one dies at home. No, no, no. That's not what end-of-life work is about. That's my message. 
That's exactly right. Thank you for sharing that. Um, very, very powerful, very important for the entire industry of hospice nurses. Well, it was a great pleasure to be able to visit with you today. I love talking shop and hospice is my passion and my heart. Thank you so much for joining us, Barbara. Thank you for having me. At NetSmart, we understand the challenges facing provider organizations. Our team will help you navigate changing value-based care models with solutions and services that make person-centered care a reality. We'll equip you with technology and services that provide holistic, real-time views of care histories that inform better decision-making and better outcomes. Visit us today at ntst.com. NetSmart, serving you so you can serve others. Thanks for listening to the NetSmart Care Threads podcast. Through collaboration and conversation, we can work together to make healthcare more connected than ever before and better support the communities we serve. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.